Oh, okay. You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. Over the past few weeks, in collaboration with the graduate student group PROSPER, we've been focusing on barriers to scientific innovation and how to overcome those barriers. For today's episode, a member of PROSPER turned his attention toward innovations in global health. Through his own experiences, Kwan has learned that if you want to overcome obstacles to improving health in places around the world, you need to work with partners around the world. But what kind of partnerships are most effective, and how do they work to create innovative solutions? To find out, he turned to someone who has a lot of experience in this area, Dr. William Powderly. So I'm Kwan. I'm a second-year PhD student working in the Genome Institute here at WashU. I'm very interested in global health issues, and I know Dr. Powdery here is an expert in terms of international collaborations and making global efforts to improve public health. So I was really interested in speaking to him. Thank you. I'm Bill Powderly. I'm the J. William Campbell Professor of Medicine, and I'm also the director of the Institute for Public Health here at Washington University. And one of the things that we have learned, I think, in the last 40 or 50 years of trying to tackle the really big problems in global health is that they can only be done as a partnership, and they require really a multidisciplinary approach. And it's very important that when you're thinking about how the developed world, the North, can help the developing countries, resource-poor countries, that it, it really is about partnership, that it isn't about people coming from the North, however well-meaning, and feeling they know the answers, and if only these people would just do what we tell them. Because, first of all, the, com- the problems are extraordinarily complex. Secondly, problems work are solved best when the people who are invested in actually solving them are part of the solution. But in many parts of the world, they don't have the human capital, whatever even about the financial capital. And by that, I don't mean that they don't have the people. They have incredibly smart people. But they don't have the infrastructure or the the educational structure or the necessary numbers of trained people to actually implement and scale up interventions that might work. We've learned a lot about this uh, in the last 15 years as we've scaled up AIDS treatment around the world. And my background is in infectious diseases and in HIV. And what we've learned is that technology, which is drug treatment, is very effective. But to scale it up in places of the world where they didn't have either an infrastructure for, for healthcare delivery or, in many cases, trained doctors, trained nurses, required more than just coming along and saying we'll deliver medications. It actually was a much greater challenge. And I think those sort of lessons have been very, very important in helping us understand that if we're going to make a meaningful difference, 
beyond just saying we care about this problem. Uh, we really have to look at, a, at this in the long term and across multiple disciplines. Mm-hmm. Sure. So how do you normally go about initiating a partnership and developing this relationship? Partnerships come from different possibilities or different interactions. Sometimes partnerships start around a research question. So there are quite a number of really outstanding investigative groups at Washington University who are doing very impactful global health work that started as an individual investigator, as an individual academic professor, finding a colleague in another country who had a similar interest and starting to work together. And that's, so that's one model, and it's very successful, and we shouldn't say that that's not, that's not the way to do it. But in, in other cases, it actually involves organizations or institutions partnering with one another. So the model there would be that a university in the West, like Washington University, would partner with an, a university in, in a low to middle income country and start to identify with them what their key needs are. Is it they need uh, more professors? Is it they need uh, that they're very interested in research in this particular area, want to train some of their students, want their students to have opportunities to come to the United States and, and learn technology that they can then bring, bring back. They're ultimately interested in developing their own workforce and developing their own, uh, and their own skills. So, so partnerships can be done in that way, or it can be a multitude of these things. Often it starts out with someone having an idea and finding someone in another country who has a similar idea and growing it from there. And one of the things I would always say to people is don't plan too much because a lot of things will, will grow organically. So um, I really agree with what you mentioned that sometimes you have students from these countries come to say like the US to learn something and bring it back because you were saying that a lot of times they don't have the human capital or infrastructure to sustain this themselves. Uh, There's one point I want to make though about human capital that I think is very important. We do think, and I do think that there is value to having opportunities for, for students and young faculty at universities to come and spend time in the United States or in Western Europe or wherever. But we have to be very conscious of one of the great challenges for places, in, particularly in Africa, is brain drain. And that what we don't want to be doing is, is essentially stealing every, all the talent from all over the world. Now, we're a country that has benefited enormously from immigration. And the, and the talents of, of immigrants in this country has benefited this country enormously. But we have to be also conscious of the fact that we shouldn't be setting up structures that actually take the talent and it doesn't return. And that's a very tricky issue because obviously every person has a right to to reach their own potential, but at the same time what we shouldn't be doing is is saying we're going to take your, your best people and keep them because I think that would actually be to the detriment of, of both the partnership and the country we're trying to help. Um, in terms of walking into a partnership, say if you're a developed country, team and trying to work to help them, would you ever be um, afraid of applying, supplying too much of a structure that inhibits their government to provide that infrastructure themselves? Where do you draw the line of, say, 
this is where we don't want to help them too much because we want them to develop them develop this themselves, and we don't want it to be over relying on us. I I don't think you draw a line, uh, a magic line in the sand. We will never replace local governance and what people will want to do for themselves. Again, I'll come back to something that I'm fairly familiar with, which is the expansion of HIV treatment. And there is this notion in the, in, in the West that all of the treatment is being provided for by the West, by donor governments and by, by philanthropy. But in fact, that's not true. Over half of the um, economic burden of providing treatment is actually being provided locally by different countries. Now, it varies from country to country because obviously some have stronger economies than others. But in, in every country, the fact that they're expanding HIV treatment and putting their own money into it is a reflection of the, that that government thinks it's important for that country. So ultimately, decisions are about what is important for a country um, won't be made by the United States or Western Europe. They need to be made by the people in that country. Mm-hmm. What they need from us is both the financial support when they, when they need to make these investments and our commitment to being with them as partners as they develop the skills to, to implement this locally. Right, yeah. So from, from more of a ground point of view, um, I was in Kenya for volunteering for a health NGO a couple of years ago for a couple of months. And what I learned was, um, I mean, I really agree that it should be the people in that country's decision to what they want to supply themselves. But I think when it comes to Kenya, a lot of these places have really successful international collaboration, NGO efforts. And the NGO I was working in was building many, many hospitals and really successful programs. But what I noticed is that people start developing these point of view where they think that in order for the country to be successful and prosper, all they need is more international help. So when I see Muzungus or foreigners like me and other people, they will be like, oh, yeah, thanks a lot, and bring your friends and bring your money and resources, and that will make us better. But then in some ways, I'm seeing, when I look, read the local newspapers and things like that, I'm seeing a lot of corruptions in the government. And a lot of times, I feel like a lot of these infrastructures in terms of healthcare should really be supported. Um, by local government, but I feel they have the luxury now of not doing as much because the international organizations are so good at it and they're implementing so many things. That's an interesting perspective, but pro- but in a macro level, probably not true. The amount of uh, international aid that goes to the developing world, to low and middle income country, although large, is only a fraction of what these countries need. There's still an enormous amount of poverty. There's still an enormous amount of challenges. And if it was just money and international aid, say, you could say to yourself, we should, have, we should have been able to fix this 20, 30, 40 years ago. The challenges we face now are not that different from the challenges we identified 40 years ago. Yes, we have made considerable progress. The number of children dying prematurely from avoidable illnesses has dropped enormously in the world, but you still have uh, 
about 10 million children dying before the age of five from diseases that are entirely preventable if people had clean water and hygiene. What you're, what you're identifying is the fact that these are, these are incredibly complicated issues. And that's why one of the goals that we have is to try and get more transdisciplinary, interdisciplinary thinking about this and get people coming from different backgrounds to start thinking about novel or innovative ways of, of tackling this. Because the reality is that we've been doing it in a certain way for quite a long time, and we haven't solved this problem. We've made progress, but we haven't solved it. The greatest change on a worldwide basis has actually been in countries where the economy has improved sufficiently that their, their own government can invest in the health of their own people. And I, and I would agree with you that that is actually the ultimate long-term solution. Corruption and bad government goes hand-in-hand hand with bad health for the people in that country. That's a, not something that public health people can solve, but it does raise the whole issue of we, we have to think about international governance, we have to think about how to help people create a, a governance structure that is, that is transparent, that allows for development of, of economies, that gives opportunity, because in fact, reliance on international aid will never solve the problem. Okay, so yeah, I think that was really a um, good point about there's progress being made, but the hurdle still being there in terms of a lot of these improvement. So uh, what do you think the biggest hurdle are now and how you think per team can come up with new solutions to tackle these problems? I, th I think the first place to start is to recognize that, in fact, the challenges we face in, in global health are, are um, complex and, and multidimensional. And one of the things that I think we've learned a lot in the last 15 to 20 years is that if you look at health alone uh, and without addressing economic development, without addressing uh, education, particularly education of women, without addressing uh, legal rights for people, particularly rights for women, without addressing issues of uh, conflict and violence and, and so forth, you actually cannot solve many of these problems. So that then requires us to say, step back and say, well, if we're going to really recognize that all of these are interconnected, and who are the people who need to be involved? And actually, it then becomes a long list. You need, obviously, you need health professionals, public health professionals, but you need um, social scientists and anthropologists to help understand the culture and how things are, are done. You need engineers to come up with technical uh, innovation that then can be applied. But it, as I said earlier, a technology alone, without understanding the context in which you're, you're delivering it, whether people will accept it, whether people will, will find it something that is actually useful in their daily life, it may not work at all. You need economists, you need lawyers to start thinking about how to have the appropriate legal structure, governance structure, both within a country and then between countries so that you can actually break down barriers. And so one of the th interesting things is that most academic centers like ours are not organized that way. They're organized by discipline and by department. And so 
the challenge is to try and break down those barriers and silos and get people to start thinking about working uh, across disciplines to solve interesting or challenging or new problems and provide a new insight into them. Can you provide us with uh, recent examples of a team with different expertise coming together and fulfill a solution? Well, I, I'm not sure that we have a, a solutions complete. I mean, we've been say we've solved this problem. But I'll give you a couple of examples of the sort of things that we've been uh, trying to do. So a very big challenge in many resource-poor resource countries is fuel supply for the household fuel supply. So indoor stoves with, without ventilation, which then leads to lung damage and lung injury in w women who do the cooking, in the children who live in the, in the, in, in the home. So there is an ongoing project that was initially funded through the Institute for Public Health and then has subsequently got uh, external funding, which is a collaboration between our engineering school in terms of designing a stove that could, be, could use the same fuel but do it in a much more efficient manner. Our medical people in our medical school who are experts in lung disease and lung injury and people from our the Brown School, which is our school of, of uh, the social work, who have knowledge of the, the cultural issues that would lead to how to get this accepted in a community. And there is ongoing work now in, in Nicaragua and in, in India, what is a, a formal study, to see if introduction of this will be accepted by people and will it lead to better health. And that sort of giving initial pilot funding to to bring people from three different disciplines together to to tackle a problem that people have known about for for many years but start tackling it as a team with everybody looking from their own at it from a different perspective one of the things i think we're increasingly learning and we have we're applying this in in a number of different areas is the critical importance of cultural understanding when you right. go, go to another um, part of the world, you may have a technical solution, but if people don't want to use it or don't think it's that relevant or important, then you, your technical solution won't, won't solve the problem. And we have a number of, of projects, for example, around cancer treatment, cancer prevention, cancer awareness that are ongoing in, in Guatemala that are critically dependent on increasing our understanding about what are the priorities for people in Guatemala, what, they, what they're interested in. In this particular case, it's, it's about prevention of, of cancer of the cervix in women. What is normally done in the United States, which is a regular pap smear, is neither easy or, or often not culturally acceptable in other parts of the world. So you have to then try to f figure out well, what is going to be acceptable? How can we bring a technology we know works to another part of the world to um, prevent cancer, in, 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 in particularly in, in poor people? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that sort of interdisciplinary teamwork uh, is critically important. And it, it may not seem like groundbreaking genomic science, but the reality is that groundbreaking genomic science 
will, may have great benefits for, for mankind, but unless we can actually implement them and, and understand how we can implement them and bring in not only the basic biomedical scientists who have this great, wonderful breakthrough intervention, but bring the people from anthropology, bring people from social sciences, and, and in, other, in some cases maybe it requires people from, from other aspects of arts and sciences, people who understand the history, philosophy, legal people. And, and so we really have to start thinking in that, in that dimension because if we come up with a breakthrough medical uh, technology in this medical school and then it takes 50 years for it to be actually used we really have not fulfilled the promise of technology. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of exciting work going on within the WashU School of Public Health. Um, so I'm also wondering, you mentioned a lot of times cultural understanding and difference is a key part of the successful implementations. So when you build your interdisciplinary teams, sounds like a lot of it's going on within WashU of different apartments. At which point and how much do you engage other local community professionals to work with you and actually deliver the result? Well, first of all, I think putting a, a, a team locally is important because one of the things we also want to do is engage our own students. And, you know, the students who are involved in research, even if they're working together, um, need all need mentors and um, faculty supervisors and as a consequence you really need to put that sort of local team together but it, as I mentioned earlier in, in an international context you can't do anything unless you have partners locally and the notion that we would we would be sending a team to go to another country uh, without preparing the partnership without having having the groundwork yeah. is a form of sort of um, cultural imperialism that I would hope we would never do yeah. but the community partnership example is a, is a critically important one because we also do the sa same sort of approach to public health challenges locally and we have we we face in our own community in St. Louis and Missouri many of the same issues that people face globally we tend not to admit it as much in the United States but we have gross disparities between in, in access to health care in the quality of health care that people get and 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 within you know a, a Ten mile, five mile radius of Washington University, you have people who who uh, you have communities whose life expectancy is over 80 years when they're born, and you have communities whose life expectancy is less than 65 years when they're born, and that really reflects a disparity that's common right across the, this country. So, one of the things that we have in our Institute for Public Health is we have a Center for Community Health Partnerships, and that is actually about working with our local communities, identifying people who have an interest, and then helping them find people at the university who would work with them. And similarly, if there are people in the university who have an idea and want to try and develop it in the community but don't have much experience in the community, we also work to help them find the right partners in the community. And I think that is, is, is critically important because it being aware and having the sensitivity to the community is very, very important in international public health work, but it's equally important if we're, if we're trying to think about uh, approaches that will help solve some of the uh, public health challenges we face in the United States.
Right, so um, those were a couple of really good examples of how the WashU team had devoted their efforts into coming up with solutions or trying to solve problems for the WashU St. Louis community and also communities in other countries. So looking into the future, where do you see this kind of interdisciplinary effort in terms of coming to the team and finding solutions going? And what do you, what are you most excited about in this kind of collaboration and coming up with innovative solutions? So, predicting the future is 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 difficult. Um, if I did know how to predict the future, I probably wouldn't be a university professor. I'd be retired somewhere. I think we have a lot of challenges. I think um, what really I find uh, exciting and intriguing is that we have not really managed, um, maybe not managed isn't the right word, we haven't, we haven't yet got the, the right balance of having high-tech and low-tech and bringing them together to just solve problems. And, and by low-tech, I mean the simple little things that will allow people to, to make their lives easier, better, but actually would also be important in, in just improving the, their, their health. One of the really positive things that's happened is that people have, are now embracing the concept that health is more than just the absence of disease and that we, we can do a lot to maintain and build health. Increasing recognition that things that we do early in people's lives, early in childhood, has so much impact in their long, long term. So I, I think what you'll see is a lot of focus uh, on identifying things that make a difference early on and then determining, hopefully, that, that they will have a positive influence on that person's life. Uh, and I don't mean just issues around providing enough nutrition uh, for, for them to reach their full physical and mental ca uh, capability, but also things about providing the right nutrition and the right environment and helping people and communities just have the, the, the right opportunities. I think we will see technological approaches that will allow us to tackle issues like clean water, better food, uh, and then it becomes how do we get them out there? How do we scale it up? How do we implement it? I think the health professions, the public health professions, can learn an enormous amount from the successes of other industries. If you think about it, we had an incredible disruptive technology in the smartphone less than 10 years ago, and look how much it's used all over the world. And the, the question is, how did that happen? And if we have an equally disruptive health technology that actually improves the lives of people, how do we make sure that we learn what from what Apple did and get it out there quickly instead of spending 30 years figuring out how we might get it out there? But I think people are starting to think that way. And I think that's where the future of public health lies. Mm -hmm. It's about combining the efforts from not just the high tech, but also having people being able to implement it. Absolutely. Right. All right, thank you, Dr. Parry, for talking to us today. You're welcome.
Many thanks to Quan and to Bill Powderly for joining Hold That Thought. For more from our Where's My Jetpack series and many more ideas to explore, please visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter or find our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.